You're listening to the Faith 2020 Podcast, helping you see 2020 clearly through the lens of faith. Now here's your host, Michael Ware. This is the Faith 2020 Podcast, and I am your host, Michael Weir, here for another episode. We have a great guest, Kristen Soltis Anderson, who's uh, an author, prominent pollster, and political analyst, and she's going to help us dig into the numbers a bit and uh, try and get a sense of what's ahead of us. She has some good insight into some flashpoints that are going to be important in this presidential election so we'll we'll talk to her. Uh, you can see both campaigns really gearing up. The the Biden campaign has just made some really important hires in the last couple of weeks. Full disclosure: these are all former uh, colleagues of mine, uh, which is part of the story. Not that they're not that they're former colleagues of mine, but that but that they're all Obama alums. And so you could see Biden campaign under the leadership of, of General Malley Dillon as campaign manager, bring out people with deep experience with winning presidential campaigns and uh, functioning at a, at a high level. Julie Rodriguez is a fantastic hire. Uh, she will be having a senior position. She'll be doing significant work when it comes to Latino outreach, but, but also speaking into all levels of the campaign. Uh, Corinne Jean-Pierre, who's just one of my favorite people, has taken a leave of absence from Move On and has taken a senior role with the Biden campaign. And then Ashley Allison. Uh, Ashley was actually someone who worked with me on the 2013 presidential inaugural committee. And one of her roles was uh, helping me with religious affairs for the inaugural She's a supremely talented person. She comes over. She was VP at the Leadership Conference for Civil Rights, and now she will be directing national coalitions uh, for the Biden campaign. These are three supremely important roles. All three of these folks have experience doing faith work, especially uh, Ashley, but all three have experience this adds to a team that includes people like John McCarthy, people like Mike Donilon, just really impressive hires. The running mate VP debate continues. We're in the stage of the campaign now where ads are being put out, but, but this is basically about, especially on for the Biden campaign, getting prepared for the general, uh, taking things to scale and uh, preparing for what's to come. You know, there's been an interesting debate uh, or, or conversation, a troubling conversation about the Republican convention and Trump issuing if the governor doesn't say and the mayor uh, in Charlotte, if they don't say immediately that the convention will be able to be held without restrictions that he's going to pull out. It's just another one of those sort of Trumpian, self-interested, divisive, you know, power plays to try and act like he's uh, embattled and the Democratic forces are, you know, trying to pull one over on him. I mean, it's just another example of the kind of grievance-fueled campaign he's going to run. It does speak to this interesting question of what does it mean for how the campaigns function? And to some extent, what does it mean for a democracy <laughs> if you know, we get not just to August, but potentially to November without voters being able to 
have at least the level of contact with presidential candidates that they were used to up up to this point, which, you know, some could argue that candidates have been able to insulate themselves from the public more and more. Uh, but but this, this is a whole other level, right? I mean, this is them being able to avoid public rallies. Uh, this is them being able to avoid random encounters with voters uh, on the on the voting lines. So it's going to be interesting to see how that develops. It's going to be interesting to see if network television is going to be willing to air hours of political conventions if they're not live sort of in-person events. So th- th- these are going to be important questions moving forward. All right. Well, I, I want to get right I want to get right to the interview. Uh, Kristen is just a wonderful guest. I'll tell you more about her after the break. Uh, This is the Faith 2020 Podcast. We're back. This is the Faith 2020 Podcast. I am Michael Ware. And I guess today is Kristen Soltis Anderson. She's a longtime friend. I've known her for quite a bit. I've been able to work uh, together in the past. Kristen is co-founder of Echelon Insights, a polling and analytics firm. She is author of The Selfie Vote, Where Millennials Are Leading America and How Republicans Can Keep Up. She's a contributor to Fox News and a columnist for The Washington Examiner. She also hosts Sirius XM POTUS channels, The Trend Line with Kristen Soltis Anderson each weekend. I wanted to bring Kristen on because I felt like it was a good opportunity to bring on someone, someone else who's really Kristen's even more sort of embedded in, in presidential pol- uh, politics polling. And so wanted to have that perspective. I, I think you'll gain a lot from our conversation. This is Kristen Soltis-Anderson on the Faith 2020 podcast. Kristen, it is so great to have you on the podcast. Thanks for joining. Of course. Thank you for inviting me. You, you came out with a wonderful book called The Selfie Vote about millennials, how they're changing politics. Would love to hear, just so my listeners could could get more of an introduction to you, would love to hear about that book and then, you know, how it might apply to 2020. How might millennials, which, um, you know, demographically are taking on the largest sort of generation representatively, I'm interested if you think that they'll cross that threshold in, in actual voting uh, in 2020. But yeah, tell us about your book and and how you think uh, we might learn from it to better anticipate what's going to happen in this next presidential election. Sure. So I feel like in the interest of full disclosure, uh, I should let your listeners know that part of why you may be so bullish on my book is that I mention your work in my book, and you are <laughs> one of the, the people that I cite. Um but yes, so I clearly did my research from, from good sources. Uh, no, so my, my story goes back, you know, over a decade ago uh, as a, you know, young, um, early to mid 20 something working in politics. Um, I, you know, working on the Republican side of the aisle, I was very interested in this phenomenon of people my age who had previously not been interested in politics um, coming up to me and going, hey, you know, I'm there suddenly were really interested in the 2008 election. Huh. which was great. But they were like, well, Kristen, how can you be Republican? You seem so nice and normal, which was <laughs> a little bit distressing. And so I wanted to get to the bottom of this. Was this just, you know, was this just my friends and the people I hung out with? Or is there something broader going on here? And what I found was that young people, uh, you know, the millennial generation, again, at the time, we were sort of our in 
our teens and 20s, uh, we're gravitating away from the GOP. We're, you know, not necessarily interested in conservative politics. And that this was not a normal thing, that there's this misconception that, well, young people are always more progressive and then you get conservative as you get older. And it doesn't really bear out quite like that um, in reality, that, you know, in the election of 2000, uh, George Bush versus Al Gore, there was very little difference between younger and older voters. But by the time you get to Obama versus McCain, a huge generational gap has opened up and that really only intensified and calcified during the subsequent elections. So you now have millennials. I mean, I'm, I'm an old millennial, but I am in my mid thirties. Uh, you know, there are uh, sl- slightly older millennials than me who are approaching 40. And what I've seen in looking at more recent data is that millennials have remained pretty democratic. Now that doesn't mean that they, for instance, love Joe Biden. There are plenty of, uh, you know, data points that suggest young voters have their skepticism around him, maybe aren't quite as enthusiastic, but nonetheless, the Republican party has not done a ton in the last 10 years to win younger voters back to their sides. So uh, as you mentioned, though, younger voters, even though the millennial generation is the biggest generation by in terms of raw numbers of adults in the U.S., we are not the biggest generation in terms of votes, that a senior citizen is significantly more likely to turn out to vote than someone who is a millennial. So we're, we're a huge generation that also underperforms our political potential. Hmm. Um, but there are signs as of the most recent midterms that that may be changing that you had big upticks in participation, you know, midterm versus midterm comparing 2014 to 2018. Everybody was more focused on the 2018 midterms than they were in 2014. But the biggest increases in turnout came among younger voters, um, that they would go from, you know, 20 to 40% turnout, um, which is a huge difference. Uh, Even though, you know, 40% voter turnout is dismal compared to, you know, other countries in the Western world, it is for the US for youth vote turnout really big, especially for a midterm election. So once you become a voter in a strange midterm election, you are definitely going to turn out in a presidential. So I expect young voters to play a pretty big role in this election. Um, Now, the complicating factor here is that Donald Trump is actually doing very poorly amongst seniors as of late. So normally, I'm the one preaching to Republicans saying, if you want to win elections over the long haul, you need to get better with younger voters. But it's kind of like the the short term, the house is on fire if you right. cannot also win senior citizens. So that's, you know, the, the generation gap is actually closing, but it's not because Republicans are doing better with young voters. It's because Democrats have suddenly started to do much better in the COVID-19 era among seniors. And on both sides of that, how dependent do you think it is uh, on the nominees for both parties. You know, if Republicans were represented by a Marco Rubio or a Josh Hawley, um, do you think they'd be performing better among young people if Democrats were, you know, represented by uh, Pete Buttigieg or Elizabeth Warren? Do you think that they'd be, you know, faring less well among among seniors? Um, is this a, a tale of, of polarization and Republicans are basically going to perform the same no matter who their candidate is and Democrats are basically going to perform the same or or is the profile of the candidates uh, influencing this? Well, so normally a presidential election where you have an incumbent is it it very often winds up being essentially a referendum on the incumbent. Uh, You know, you either want 
four more years or you would like to move in a different direction. Um, right. But I, I do think that this, that Joe Biden has a special type of appeal with senior citizens that other potential Democratic candidates might not have had. Uh, and you saw this really show up in his performance in the Democratic primary, that almost nobody else in that primary really made, really challenged him for senior Democrats or older Democrats, that you had the Elizabeth Warrens and the Bernie Sanders of the world, you know, duking it out for younger Democrats. Um, Pete Buttigieg is kind of an interesting case and where you find this happen in, in, you know, you found this happen with Macron's election in France as well, but where these younger candidates actually do better among older yeah. uh, voters because young voters look at someone like Pete Buttigieg and are like, wait a minute, he's my age. I know <laughs> that I, <laughs> I leave dirty dishes in the sink. I can't keep my, you know, my indoor plants alive and someone my age wants to be president. Are you kidding me? Uh, I'm being a little flip about this, but you know, that actually older voters, you know, they liked Macron better. Buttigieg often did well among older yeah, voters right. too, but yeah. setting that aside, you know, Trump is trying to make this not a referendum because, you know, if his job approval is hovering around 44, 45%, that's not great. That does not bode super well for getting uh, reelected. And, you know, he benefited last time around from being a candidate where if you did not like him and you did not like Hillary Clinton, slightly more often than not, you would break for Trump, you know, yep. given that that choice. When you're the incumbent, that's no longer necessarily the case. Um, you mm. know, people now, Trump is no longer a kind of risky, well, you know, high, high upside, high downside type choice. <laughs> you, you know what the upside and the downside look like. And you can choose accordingly. And so I, I think he is has a lot of potential problems on that front that, you know, if this is viewed as a referendum on Trump, especially now that he does not have a strong economy to point to and say, well, you know, don't don't change horses mid race. Look, we're at, you know, historically low unemployment. That's no right. longer the case. And while early on in the pandemic, voters were not holding him responsible for the bad state of the economy, his job approval on the economy was staying, you know, sky high compared to his overall job approval. Right. That advantage has has fallen away a bit. Yeah, there was an interesting political story this week. Uh, Jason Furman, uh, a leading economist during the uh, still, but but he he was a senior official in the Obama administration, was predicting that we could head into the general election uh, with sort of historically positive uh, economic numbers due to post-pandemic sort of bounce back. Uh, and the article went through some of uh, uh, sort of Democratic strategists being concerned about Trump being able to regain that sort of economic mantle. Uh, I thought that was interesting. I do want to stay on this question of the economy. You know, one of the perplexing things for a lot of folks has been, you know, typically voters rank the economy as being their number one priority when thinking about voting. Uh, Trump, you would think his profile is as a businessman, and that's an area of strength for him. And yet he's been pretty undisciplined in the eyes of many in terms of staying focused on the economy and sort of preferring divisive cultural issues. How do you make sense of that as someone who is deep sort of in the numbers and talks to voters all the time? Uh, do you think do you think that's going to hurt him uh, going into 2020? Or, or is there some benefit to him politically by, uh, you know, stoking controversies that have varying degrees of relevance to policy debate? Sometimes they're uh, sometimes mm -hmm. they're, you know, related to 
legislation. Sometimes they're about Joe Scarborough um, and uh, not not too related to policy debates. But talk a little bit about the economic sort of culture war divide. Yeah, well, at the moment, you know, the the economy had actually been the number one issue on voters' minds for most of, you know, the 2010s. Uh, that you know, after the financial crisis, it was sitting far and away the top of the list of what people's top issue was. By the time you get to the 2018 midterms, that dynamic has changed a bit, in part because the economy was doing relatively well. So, you know, if if the economy is doing okay, then it makes sense that it wouldn't be the top issue. Instead, immigration was a top issue for Republicans, and healthcare tended to be a top issue for independents and Democrats. Mm -hmm. And so if Trump wanted to kind of, you know, if, if your theory of the case is that what you need to do is make sure that your side is fired up, ready to go, every single Republican voter turns out to vote, then maybe you think, okay, I'm going to do the things that remind Republicans, you know, that, that the media is their enemy or that, that you know, that we are uh, under siege or what have you. And that explains that strategy. But yeah. I would, I, I think that ignoring the importance of persuasion is not a good thing for Trump to be doing, especially given that Democrats nominated Joe Biden, who may be able to pull some of those more moderate swing voters into his camp and who who might be turned off by you know the the raising of divisive social you know questions yeah. or uh, by that I mean things like tweeting about Joe Scarborough etc right um so I, I think you know the economy is no longer or prior to COVID-19 was not the number one issue so even though he was you know trying to run on that as his thing to win over voters in the middle you still had issues like healthcare sort of looming out there where Republicans had real challenges. But of course, COVID-19 has blown all of that up. And my column this week in the Washington Examiner is all about how I actually think the issue of China is now going to be, certainly for the Republican primary of 2024, <laughs> we're three years yeah, out right. from those debates beginning. Right. Um, yeah. China is going to be the number one issue there. Normally, foreign policy does not pop to the top of voters' minds for any sustained period of time. You might have a crisis here and there and people get worried about it for, you know, a week or two, but luckily yeah. it doesn't affect voters personally, it'll fade back down and something like healthcare will reemerge. But China is a security issue. It is a foreign policy issue, but it's also an economic issue. And now it's also a healthcare issue. Um, and so this is now, I think, something that is you are going to see Republicans talking about China nonstop between now and Election Day, because it is sort of the thread that will tie all of these other top issues together and give Republicans what they, you know, you're already seeing this with, I think, today, Martha McSally in Arizona. She was asked a question about her opponent and immediately began talking about, well, communist China, X, Y, and right. Z. So like this yeah. is, if you want to see what the next six months are going to look like, if you want to know what the next six years of politics are going to look like, I think it is going to be nonstop China as the top issue. Well, I've missed talking about the uh, the Asia pivot from the Obama years, so I'm I'm ready to I'm ready to bring <laughs> that back. Um, I, I want to go back to something you said about uh, sort of persuasion, and I'm as you know, kind of deeply invested and involved in these debates. I think often a false debate between mobilization and, and persuasion. Mm -hmm. Talk a little bit about what you're seeing in the data about um, about Biden's capacity to potentially 
win over some voters that Democrats lost in 2016? And and is there a particular profile that you're looking at of a rich slice of uh, persuadable voters? Well, I, I think these these seniors, these numbers among senior citizens are just every time a new poll comes out, my jaw is on the floor. Um, mm. it, last week, you had Quinnipiac come out and it had Trump down among seniors by double digits. And I thought, wow, that's extraordinary. And then I think 24 hours later, the Fox News poll comes out and it had Biden down by, you know, in the height or pardon me, Trump down by significant double digits to Biden yeah. among seniors. And so this is a group that I think, you know, it, it would have been hard for me to think up a scenario where Trump loses senior citizens, but running against Joe Biden during a pandemic where Republicans may seem over eager to reopen the country and with seniors being huh. particularly at risk, uh, you know, that to me seems to be the best explanation for why we're seeing what we're seeing. Now, I saw an interesting tweet from Cook Political Report, uh, national political uh, reporter, yeah. Um, Amy Walter, who she noted that she thinks what's going on is not that seniors who like Trump are leaving Trump, but rather that seniors who may have last time around not liked either candidate, you know, as I mentioned before, if you didn't like right. Trump and you didn't like Clinton, that she thinks that's a, a group that would have been particularly averse to Hillary Clinton, having, you know, watched politics over the last 30 years where the Clintons were very dominant, that perhaps that was a group that was very, uh, they would break for Trump even if they didn't like him. Maybe they begrudgingly say, well, they somewhat disapprove of him, but the, this moment has been the thing that has pushed them over the edge. So it's not as though he's losing people that once loved him, but rather if you were an ambivalent senior, this is the thing that's pushing you. Where if you're an ambivalent young voter, you may just be saying, eh, I'm not going to participate in turnout. Yeah, it's going to be one of the most fascinating things to watch, I, I think, whether the Biden campaign is looking at these numbers and decides that this represents a pathway to victory, or if they think Trump's going to be able to inevitably sort of close the gap. And so they decide that even if, you know, a turn towards youth, a turn towards the left might cost them some seniors now, like most of those were going to be lost anyways. And, you know, we, we need to perform better among young voters. I think that's going to be one of the most interesting tensions to play out. Obviously, I think uh, whether, you know, uh, real or not, I think the, the choice of a running mate is going to be perceived to be part of an answer to that, you know, that that conundrum. Uh, but but I, I do think that's going to be a, a key dynamic. Um, I also wanted to ask you about about religion. This is the Faith 2020 podcast. And um, you've always been an interesting voice here. You, you know, you, you focus, especially earlier in your career on millennials, which are, are really, you, you know, at that time, the, the most uh, religiously diverse and also the most sort of uh, the, the highest rates of religious unaffiliation. Um, and now we're starting to see that sort of those characteristics that define millennials become more defining of the overall electorate. How, how do you see religion playing a role in 2020? We, we, we see robust efforts on the side of the Trump campaign, uh, Catholics for Trump. Uh, uh, Trump is, uh, has made the issue of reopening churches a sort of partisan issue. And then the Biden campaign has actually been doing more than we saw four years ago from the Democratic side. Uh, so so talk, talk to me about how you see faith playing a role in, in 2020. Well, you have to start with the Supreme Court question. And I think the odds that we are looking at 
this being a huge topic with folks thinking, you know, whether it's Ruth Bader Ginsburg or someone else that, you know, is there going to be a vacancy on the court in the next couple of years? I think that will continue to motivate uh, a lot of, of the voters that won, you know, the Trump won over last time with the Supreme Court as sort of the key issue, um, that that dynamic has not changed, uh, that, that the court still remains one where Republicans would quite like to uh, have another pick. And, that you know, that at least in the last in the most recent couple of years seems to have been more motivating to Republican voters than to Democratic voters. Um, but I'm, I am more curious about even stepping back from just the 2020 election and, and going back to your, the question about younger voters, um, in yeah. sort of trying to understand the, the patterns of how young people are viewing religion. So in the sense that you've got this trend of people saying, well, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. You know, I've, I did yeah. a survey for a client um, a couple weeks ago, all about Gen Z and millennials. And, you know, we found like, like you mentioned, you know, a rise in people saying, look, I'm not uh, religiously affiliated. I don't think of my, I don't attend religious services that often, but there is an increase in the, those who say, well, but I do pray daily. And I do think of myself as a person who thinks about, you know, uh, faith or a belief in a higher power and, and those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Um, but I remain, I mean, one of my favorite long form pieces that I have read over the last year was a story about the rise in millennial women deciding to become nuns in the Catholic church yes, yes, and that they're actually becoming, and that they're not joining like the, you know, I, I don't know that there is an easy I don't know that there's an easy difficulty setting for that, but that they're like intentionally choosing to join orders that are the most, you know, arduous and they're the most restrictive and that in a way it's sort of this like pushing back against, uh, uh, that if there's a desire for, for rules and structure in one's life that you're not getting from other places where so many rules and boundaries have been breaking down, that is there is there this going to be this sudden resurgence and like an interest in more tra- traditional ways to practice one's faith? Um, mm. I don't have tons of good data on this, but just as like an observation of a thing I'm watching, um, could that be a way that Gen Z differs from millennials? I'm I'm keeping my eye on that. Yeah, no, that that's that's super uh, super interesting. As we sort of get closer to this election, and I would love to hear from you. What do you have your eyes on? And before you get to that, I do just want to flag one thing for you on the Supreme Court question that I've forgotten. Now I'm remembering. Um, there are several hot sort of uh, very like hot button issues that the Supreme Court's going to be putting out uh, its rulings on in the next four to six weeks. Uh, it's going to be very interesting. A lot of eyes are on, uh, particularly Gorsuch joining the liberals in at least one of these cases. That could have a significant effect. If, if Gorsuch was, for instance, in the religious freedom, the Title VII case, uh, join the liberals, um, uh, that could really shake up how Republican voters are considering the importance of the Supreme Court and and, and how reliable Trump is as uh, selecting an appointment to the bench. So uh, I think that's going to be a really interesting, uh, I, I would imagine the Trump campaign is hoping for 
no surprises uh, in in this last batch of of rulings before before the election. Um, so I just wanted to flag that for you and, and for our listeners uh, to keep an eye on that. Um, but let's close with this: if listeners were going to be paying attention to two or three sort of flashpoints or issues or just things to keep an eye on between now and November. Uh, what would you say though those should be? What what do you think might be uh, tipping points when it comes to deciding the election? Well, I, I would say the number one thing to watch, at least in the the near term, is how the campaigns are talking about China. Now we know how Trump's going to talk about China because, frankly, he's been talking about China a lot longer than anyone else has. I mean, that's, that's I, right. I would say that's part of how he was able to win the Republican nomination mm. is that he sensed that this was a hot button that was not being talked about. And this is long, long, long before COVID-19 was anywhere on the radar. Right. Um, you know, that, that he sort of has sensed that this is a button, uh, an issue of concern for a lot of Americans and nobody, you know, I hate to say, oh, well, Washington elites weren't talking about it, but, but you know, certainly not yeah. in the way that he was. Right. Sure. Um, so we know how he's going to handle it. I am curious how Biden will, because the huh. most recent Pew polling I've seen on China, you had 72% of Republicans with an unfavorable view of China, but you had a 62% of Democrats. And that, that is, you know, from like the first week or so of the, the COVID crisis. So it, you know, it was still brewing, but we were not where we are now. Um, I wonder, is partisanship going to drive this such that you net, you do you actually wind up seeing an increase in popular or favorability toward <laughs> China as a backlash <laughs> against Trump among Democrats? Right. Um, right. And and what does Biden do about that? I mean, does Biden talk tough on China, or does Biden, uh, you know, not talk tough and push back on Trump? You know, how I think how Democrats navigate the China question is one I am fascinated to watch because it's it's obvious to me what Republicans are going to do, but it is not obvious to me what Democrats are going to do. Um, yeah. And this is, as I mentioned, this is a there is a broad bipartisan consensus among voters, if not among sort of Washington policy pundit types around this issue um, that voters are looking for someone who's going to be tough and want to hold China accountable and want to protect American jobs and all of the things that are tied to that issue. How do Democrats handle it? Two, again, watching those crosstabs on seniors. Can Trump uh, win them back? Can Biden hang on to them? Um, Is this something that is just about this moment of the rhetoric around the pandemic? Or does it, is it broader than that? Is it that seniors, you know, just are sick of Trump sort of I don't know his his style. You know, is that finally grading on yeah, you know sure. some folks? So those are the two big things: is, is China and seniors are, are the issues that I am I'm following the closest. Kristen, I can't thank you enough for joining. How can folks stay up on your work and your thinking? Uh, what's the best way for folks to keep up with you? So probably Twitter, where every day, the most important thing I do is post a picture of my golden retriever, Wally, so I can promise a little bit of <laughs> we joy love in your feed, uh, in addition to, you know, data and what have you. Um, my, my Twitter handle is at KSoltisAnderson. Um, but I also, I host a radio show on Sirius XM's POTUS channel, it's their nonpartisan politics channel, every Saturday morning at 10 a.m., perfect, you know, go running your errands time, uh, throw that on in the car. Um, I've always got interesting guests talking about news of the day, but I also try to talk about sort of the long-term trends I'm seeing in politics. What are the, the things that are coming up on the horizon? So yeah. give me a listen there. Hey, that's wonderful. Thank you for all the insight that you offer and for the work that you do. Great to have you on, Chris. Thank you for having me. 
I hope you enjoyed that conversation. Kristen's work is really worth following. She's a informed voice. She's an interesting and compelling voice. She does excellent work and just so glad to know her and glad to be able to, uh, for those of you who didn't know her already, uh, to be able to introduce her to you. And as always, would love for you to uh, leave a review of the Faith 2020 podcast on iTunes. It helps us to get the word out. And if you want to hear from me uh, throughout the week, you can subscribe to my newsletter at reclaiminghope.substack.com. Again, that's reclaiminghope.substack.com. All right, friends, that's it for this week. We'll talk to you again soon. This is the Faith 2020 Podcast.